Jesus is the only way to be saved. That belief has been held by Christians since the very beginning. They've always held it. Always believed it. Yet, it is today, 21st century Britain, a controversial belief. And we, fearful of offending others, can find ourselves tempted to water it down. But if we treat uh, faith, religion, getting right with God in a relative way, we're straying from the faith that we have received. Treat faith like maybe getting home from central London. What do I mean by that? You type it into City Mapper on your phone, Google Maps, and it tells you all the different ways that you can get home from central London. Treat yourself to a trip on the Clipper. Live in luxury on the Lizzie line. Hop on a bus. It tells you all the possible options. You can go for an hour and a half on a Boris bike if you so desire. Whatever your route, it's the same destination. That is how many would like to think about faith. All the options, they're all just going to the same direction. And it would be preferable if you kept your journey details to yourself. Maybe this is something that you feel today. You feel the temptation to think of Jesus like that in our contemporary society. Or maybe you're here today not a Christian, and you're here in church wondering if there is an answer to the questions that you have been asking, and the claim that Jesus is the only way to be saved gets under your skin and riles you up a little bit. Maybe as a Christian, you look at the world around you, you wonder how much should we concede in conversations about just how exclusive Jesus is. You feel you don't want to be offensive. Our colleagues at work come out with really bold statements. All religions are just uh, right a little bit about different things. All of us are on a journey up the same mountain, right? And you feel, what should I say? Maybe you've even been told you should be silent about Jesus being the only way. But it's something the earliest Christians faced in some ways too. The exclusivity of Jesus was a controversy and an offense in their times as well. Let's look today at this early, early witness to Jesus being the only way, the early incident of Christians being silenced. We're picking up back in the book of Acts. Peter and John, by calling on the name of Jesus, have just healed a lame man who had been begging at the temple gate. Everyone has been praising God because of this. And this man can walk again. It's been, Peter says that it was a sign that Jesus is the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for, the Savior. And it was all God's plan that he would be crucified and raised from the dead that we might be saved. And after explaining this, you can see that it, it didn't go down too well with some powerful people. And we see that persecution, that silencing of Christians, begins in chapter 4. Uh, look just even back at, at verses uh, 1 to uh, 5 of this chapter. As they were speaking uh, to the people, the priests and captain of the temple, Sadducees came upon them, 
greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus' name the resurrection of the dead. They arrested them. Peter and John have just been arrested, put in custody till the next day because it was already evening. Can't do a trial at night. Let's just wait here. So they spent the night in jail. They've woken up the next day. And now it's time for them to explain themselves. Look at verses 5 to 7. They're put on trial. The next day, the rulers and elders and scribes, they gather together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, all who are of the high priestly family. They'd set them in the midst and they inquired, by what power or what name did you do this? Look who Peter and John are being put in front of, this beginning of persecution. We get rulers, we get elders, we get scribes. It's likely the Sanhedrin, the, the council of sort of 71 senior guys. They're the most powerful sort of politician, theocracy politicians in the area. Elders, probably the, the lay elders of each uh, tribe and scribes, this a class of people who were deliberately set apart in order to uh, copy out the law, uh, distribute it, and teach it. So it's a big deal. And then there's Annas, the high priest. Uh, technically, historically, he was deposed as high priest in AD 15 by the Roman Empire. But he retained his power, status in the Jewish community. Uh, Caiaphas is Annas' son-in-law. John Alexander, also part of the family, presumably, and all who are part of the family. You've got the the dynasty of high priests here. It's the most powerful guys in all of the land. Most powerful Jews in the community. It's real power. It's not sort of like the uh, bishops in the House of Lords, which are sort of allowed to speak and, and input into things, have a little vote. Nothing compared to that. These are the guys calling the shots. These guys are actually powerful able to hand over Jesus to Pilate and crucify him. And standing before them, Peter and John. Can you imagine how they're feeling? It's just a a matter of weeks beforehand, Annas and Caiaphas were forming part of the court that handed Jesus over to be crucified. That was the court that had Peter running scared, abandoning Jesus, denying he ever knew him, calling down curses on him. It's the exact same guys. So maybe they're thinking, is history about to repeat itself here? What have we got ourselves into? Are we about to be on the receiving end of some violent mob justice as well? Are we about to be handed over to be crucified? By what power did you do this? Verse 7. That's the question that's put to them. Now, for us today, we don't live in a theocracy under an empire. It's unlikely that we're going to find ourselves in this exact situation. But there may well come a point, each one of us sitting here, uh, where we have to have a similar sense of crunch point. Do I stand up and be known as somebody who is a follower of Jesus, their life transformed by him. We may well one day face a crunch point. We'll have to work out if we're going to stand up for what we believe in, be known as a Christian in our workplace, at the school gates, 
to a stranger just having a conversation with us, to a very good friend. Perhaps there'll be times where you're called upon to answer for your faith. You're a Christian, aren't you? Do do you believe X or, or Y? Are you one of the types who of Christians who believe this shocking thing? Maybe some of the people asking you will be powerful people. Your boss, your boss's boss, the head of your school, the head of your children's school, asking you your opinions on these things. It'll feel like there's quite a lot at stake. What will people think of me? What will my friends think? How will this affect my children's relationships at school, their friendships? How will it affect my relationships at work, my career progression? What will the consequences be? Persecution, it begins with that silencing and that pressure. And will we stand up and be known? Well, look at what Peter says. He begins their defense in verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, By what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. His defense here begins with the fact that Jesus is the one who healed He's basically saying, are we really being put on trial for this lame man who has never walked a day in his life, who is now leaping and praising God in the temple? This is a good thing. We're on trial for it. And again, it's not Peter and John that did this. They're completely honest and upfront about who did this. They say it is Jesus who transformed this man's life. It is Jesus who healed this lame man. He's already been saying such. Back in chapter 3, he was very clear, wasn't he, that it was Jesus' healing power, nothing to do with him and his, his faithfulness, uh, everything to do with Jesus. And he's specific, isn't he? Again, it's Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You know the one. About seven weeks ago, handed him over to be crucified. That's the one who did this. He's the one whom God raised from the dead. We're witnesses to it. We met him. We saw him. And it's by him this man has been healed. His defense is... Essentially, this is a very, very good thing that has happened to this man. And you're putting us on trial for it. And let's remember that it is Jesus who did this. I imagine it's somewhat like in Harry Potter and the Order of Phoenix. And I want to give you a heads up that this is a niche reference. Where Harry saves his non-magical cousin by doing magic underage in front of him. And the Ministry of Magic comes down with the full weight of the law on him, wants to send him away. They full criminal trial for just that simple matter of underage magic, saving his cousin. It's a nice reference, but I imagine it's somewhat similar. Because it's a stitch-up. It's an even greater stitch-up here, because no law has been broken at all in any way. Peter's defense is that they've done a good thing. And in fact, it is... Jesus' name, that this man has been healed. It is Jesus who did this very good thing. And he moves from that seamlessly to saying it is Jesus who saves. Peter has no problem moving from Jesus healing the man 
to talking about salvation in general terms. I think it's because the healing of the lame man is almost a type of us all. We looked at it when we saw the incident itself. Spiritually lame from birth. Not even truly knowing what to ask from God. But because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can have life to the full and perfect relationship with our Heavenly Father. Predicted in Isaiah 35, verse 6, where it says, In those days the lame man will leap like a deer. It's predicting the days of Jesus, that lame man, a sign that the gospel is going out and transforming lives. Look at how Peter does this transition. He's just said it's Jesus who's healed this man. Then verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He does it. He does this explanation of Jesus is the one who saves. He does it by calling him a stone. Slightly confusing imagery, isn't it? He's a stone. He says, Jesus is the stone that you said no thanks to, but he's actually become the cornerstone. Why this imagery? He's drawing on on Psalm 118, a psalm in the Old Testament, praising God for his faithfulness and his deliverance from enemies. And the picture is almost one of builders going through a building site, looking at various stones, trying to pick out a cornerstone. The cornerstone, the most important stone in a building project. It was uh, what the whole building depended on. Basically, if you took it out, everything would fall down. All the other stones were set in reference to the cornerstone. And, And Peter says, and Psalm 118 says, the Lord's salvation is the stone that the builders rejected. They said no thanks to But that stone becomes the cornerstone, what all of salvation depends upon. And Peter says that stone is Jesus. You rejected him, but he's the most important. Why is that? Well, verse 12, there's salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only place that we can go for salvation, Peter says. He couldn't be any clearer, could he? He, He's not a simple add-on and optional extra for the Jewish faith leaders to to sort of have if they like or uh, to, to disregard if they don't want him. But he's truly the only one, the only one to be saved, the the only one who can save. And this was true when Psalm 118 was written. And it's true when Peter preached this to uh, these powerful, persecuting people. And it's true for us today. There's no other name, no other place we can go to, no other religion, no other good actions, no one, no thing that can save us but Jesus. It means that by Jesus' death, his crucifixion, that these people who Peter is talking to did, His death on the cross means that our sin, all of our wrongdoing, all of our rejecting of Jesus is forgiven. And that by his resurrection and his spirit living in us, 
we have a complete new life in him. If you like, if we were to type into our spiritual city mappers, our spiritual Google maps, the way to our spiritual home, the only route that will come up is Jesus. And maybe here today, you've been feeling spiritually homeless, searching for answers, asking questions, not sure, but feeling spiritually homeless. Let me encourage you today. It is by Jesus we get to our spiritual home, back in a perfect relationship with our Heavenly Father, the one that we are made for. That is the new life that is on offer for us this morning. Please, if that is you, today, don't leave church today without talking to myself, a member of staff, one of the stewarding team, the person sitting next to you. Ask to find out more about this Jesus and how to get home. And this is something that if you are a Christian here today, you also need to hear. Because we might say, yes, absolutely, Jesus is the only way. But there can be subtle beliefs or behaviours that creep in and we can fall into almost accidentally that begin to undermine this actual belief. Take, for example, our good works. A natural outworking of a true and living faith. But when doubts come, difficulty happens, when the busyness of life gets on top of us, it's almost tempting sometimes, isn't it, to look at our good works as evidence and reassurance that we are indeed saved. We need to look to Christ. He is the only way to be saved. Or perhaps we've always heard that having a right relationship with God will mean that we read our Bible and pray. And so when we don't manage that, we feel like we've failed God, we've let him and ourselves down. We feel like, am I even saved? But it's Jesus. He is the only way to be saved. He is the, the confidence that we have. Where our faith is, is it? he is the salvation, the only way, the only way to be right with God. Again, those good things are outworkings of having that relationship in right with God, not the cause of it. It's so easy for us to subtly get it wrong. A big take-home for us today could be believe Jesus is the only way to be saved and live like it. Remember it and live like it. It means forsaking all other gods. If we come from a, a, a different religion or spirituality, different background, it'll mean no longer worshipping, turning there for uh, guidance. It doesn't mean abandoning who you are, your, your family or your culture, but it does mean you belong primarily to Jesus. You worship him alone. You don't worship other things anymore. You rely on him alone to be saved. Now, this does leave us with the claim, though. Isn't this a bigoted belief? Isn't this something that you can't hold in respectable 21st century Britain, this exclusive claim to salvation. Surely it's too offensive to other religions, other spiritualities. The first thing to note about that is that, well, Jesus himself claims that he is the only way. His followers say he is the only way. The whole entire witness of scripture says he is the only way. 
to say anything else is to remove ourselves from actual Christian belief. It's not a popular opinion. It's one that we need to be careful not to unnecessarily offend. But it is a truth that we can't deny. And it is a fundamental Christian belief. Our modern culture says that we should have no exclusive claims to truth. Everyone should have their own ideologies and stand by them. Please understand that if if you hold that belief, you're very, very welcome here. And it's great that you're here. But please know that what many in our society claim, that no one has an absolute claim to truth, is itself a truth claim, an absolute claim to truth, and imposing an ideology on others. It doesn't pass its own test. And of course, to say, Christians, you can't say that you have the only way is an offense in itself to Christ and his followers. And what he said, so to demand that Christians cannot say this, is to demand that Christians abandon Christ. We can't do it. And Peter didn't do that. Praise God that he stood up filled with the Holy Spirit and launched that defense. Because next we see this verdict, the the outcome of his speech. The first thing uh, to see is that uh, they are clearly astounded by the witness of Peter and John, aren't they? The evidence uh, in front of them, these powerful people, uh, what do they see? Well, verse 13, when the boldness of, of Peter and John, when they saw that and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. They recognized these guys have been with Jesus. These aren't elite guys, educated guys, but giving this effect, uh, this defense, and well, the fact that there is even this, this man here who we all know was lame and is now healed. Look at verse 14. Seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So praise God for the witness of Peter and John, uneducated, normal guys who know Jesus and witness to him, filled with the Holy Spirit, simply shared what they know, or more accurately, who they know. Maybe they were scared. Maybe they were worried. They trusted in the Spirit and spoke up anyway. And the evidence is undeniable, isn't it? And they even admitted it themselves. When they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. Look at verse 16, saying, what should we do with these men? A notable sign has been performed through them. It's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny it. And look at verse 22. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. There's a a man here who for 40 odd years has been sitting by the beautiful gates of the temple begging for money because he can't walk. And here he is leaping about and praising God. The evidence is undeniable. How would Luke even have known about these private chats? You might well ask if you're the skeptic here today. It's possible that uh, Paul, who we'll see later in the book of Acts, was actually there. Uh, He became a Christian from a very elite Jewish background. It's possible that uh, the person who taught Paul um, was, was there instead, Gamaliel. They decide there that all the evidence points in one direction. So what can we say? The man is praising God. These uneducated guys that, that know Jesus, there's nothing 
that we can do. So for us today, I think we should just take encouragement from this. We wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for this faithful witness of Jesus' first followers, the apostles. We wouldn't be here today from all nations gathered in London here today if it weren't for them speaking up, speaking out, standing firm when it was dangerous for them to do so, when it was scary for them to do so. Praise God for their witness. And for us, why don't we pray for some of that same boldness? We don't have to be elite, highly educated experts. We can just be normal people whose lives have the undeniable mark of being transformed by Jesus Christ. The evidence is undeniable. So what do the council do? They silence and they threaten. Verse 17, in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in in his name. So they call them, charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. The council, these these powerful people who began this persecution, they want Jesus' name to stop. Enough of this Jesus nonsense. Don't tell anyone anymore. Stop talking about him. And we won't have a problem. It's quite sinister, isn't it? This lame man who has been healed and all of these witnesses to the power of the name of Jesus and the response from these powerful guys is, no, 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 be quiet. You can't talk about this. To which Peter and John respond, don't they? Peter and John answer them, verse 19, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have heard. What does this mean? They're saying, you're smart guys, let us know whether it's right for us to follow you or to follow God. The implication is they're just following God, which is clearly the right thing to do. And in fact, they say they can't help but speak. They can't help but say what they have seen and heard. Have you ever had such good news that you couldn't help but share it? Such a great film that you've seen that you can't help but want to tell people to go and see it. This is a whole other level to that, isn't it? It's no matter how much you tell us to stop and be quiet, I'm sorry, we're going to have to keep on telling people about this. No matter how much you you tell us not to, we're going to carry on. We have to speak. It's too good to keep ourselves. Truly, it is being lost and thirsty and alone in a desert, finding a life-giving oasis and seeing another lost, alone, and thirsty traveler, the news of the oasis is too good not to share. We can't help it. It's impossible to keep it to yourself. Peter and Paul, they ca- Peter and John, they cannot help but speak. And so verse 21, when the council further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them, because all the people, all of them, were praising God for what had happened. So Jesus is the only way to be saved. Our response is to praise him for it and to stand up and say so. Now, we might be here spiritually homeless. We might be here spiritually scared. Today, we need to be thankful that Jesus' first followers, in the midst of being persecuted by very powerful people, stood up and said, Jesus 
is the only way. It's something we need to pray for boldness for ourselves to be able to do. And if you're here, spiritually homeless, today let me encourage you, type in home to the spiritual city mapper of your life. The only route will be Jesus. And get on that journey and explore that more. Well, we're going to take a moment. Let's just reflect on what we've heard. And then we're going to continue our service in prayer.